Hello and welcome to another episode of EKU Online's eCast series. EKU Online's mission is to change lives by providing access to affordable and high quality degree programs in meaningful disciplines that positively impact our society. We thank you for joining us. Today our guest is Dr. Ryan Baggett, who is the Interim Dean of the EKU Graduate School and also serves as Professor of Homeland Security. Prior to his faculty appointment, Dr. Baggett served for 10 years as the Director of Homeland Security Programs within the Justice and Safety Center at EKU. In the area of scholarship, Dr. Baggett has co-authored several book chapters and books, including Homeland Security and Critical Infrastructure Protection, first and second editions, and Homeland Security Technologies for the 21st Century. Dr. Baggett was awarded the EKU High Impact Practice Teaching Award in 2019, the 2017 College of Justice and Safety Mentorship Award, the 2015 EKU eCampus Faculty Advocate for Student Success Award, the 2014 recipient of the EKU Award of Teaching Excellence, and a 2013 recipient of the EKU Critical Thinking Teacher of the Year Award. Dr. Baggett holds a doctorate degree in leadership and policy studies and a master's of science degree in criminal justice with a concentration in police administration from Eastern Kentucky University. His bachelor's of science degree in criminal justice is from Murray State University. Welcome Dr. Baggett and thank you so much for your time today. Well, thanks Steve, thanks for having me on today. Well, since you have spent a, a good portion of your professional career in the field of Homeland Security, let's begin our discussion there. Now, EKU has a tremendous reputation for its Homeland Security program. Would you please speak about the degrees and certifications that are offered and a little bit about the student demographics? What, what kind of students are actually drawn to this type of degree? I think that's a great place to start off today, Steve. When I describe the Eastern Kentucky University Homeland Security Program to folks. I, I usually describe it as a modern program that stands on the legacy of those existing programs at EKU, including security management and disaster preparedness that were national leaders in the field for more than five decades. So to give you a little bit of history, in 2007, EKU became home to one of the first undergraduate Homeland Security degree programs in the United States. In 2011, we added the completely online bachelor's program through eCampus. This means we've been delivering quality online education for a decade now. And the program differentiates itself from other programs in the U.S. by offering a standalone bachelor of science degree with specialization opportunities in disaster management, security operations management, and intelligence studies. Now, as you noticed, Steve, the Homeland Security Program has become one of the leading and the largest programs in the nation, instructing students and how to, what we really say is safeguarding life and assets. So we do this with critical infrastructure protection, uh, thwarting natural and man-made disasters, response and recovery, counterintelligence, law enforcement intelligence, and then employing the latest security technologies. And talking about the program, I'd be remiss if I didn't brag on our faculty just a little bit. 
We've got a team of full-time and part-time faculty with extensive experience in the field that is coupled with their higher education credentials. We believe in employing an active learning methodology in our courses, and we focus those courses on applied real-world challenges. Not only do they have these wonderful attributes, our faculty, but they have a genuine desire for student success. I, I goes without saying I'm, I'm really proud of them. I'm also proud of our students. They're outstanding. Uh, they excel in their curriculum areas, but they're also focused not only on the content of Homeland Security, but the professional skills that we push in each of our classes. So they come out of our program with content knowledge and skills like critical and creative thinking, oral and written communication, leadership and planning, problem solving, teamwork, the list goes on and on. We offer the Bachelor of Science in Homeland Security has a core of 42, a very strong core, 42 hours. And it's accompanied by a flexible set of 36 free elective hours. Now, what that allows our students to do is entertain double majors, university certificates, minors, basically allows them to uh, compile additional credentials for their resume when they get out in those job markets and in those interviews so that, uh, that they're very much prepared. It sets themselves apart from other people that may be interviewing for the same position. We offer university certificates in intelligence studies, security operations, and we have a minor in disaster management. I also wanna say that we have two graduate certificates in concentration that can be included into most master's degree programs or completed individually. Uh, we have corporate security operations and we have emergency management and disaster resilience. Finally, I wanna to note to all of our listeners, Steve, that all of our undergraduate programs are offered both on campus and completely online. And our graduate certificates are also offered completely online for maximum flexibility. Well, that's really impressive, Dr. Baggett. I, I wasn't even aware of the, the extent that, uh, that your programs uh, have expanded like that. That's very impressive. You know, I saw an interesting statistic um, that seemed to indicate the average age for our, our online Homeland Security students who are seeking a bachelor's degree is 30 years old. So what's the draw for these older students and what's the biggest difference that you see in the traditional age college student versus the adult learner? Well, I think one of the best parts about our Homeland Security, whether it be online or on campus, is the diversity of age and experiences. Oftentimes we'll have the same course, we'll have that student that's right out of high school next to a military veteran who served tours overseas. Also in that course may be an individual who's ready for their second career or desires a promotion in their current position. Homeland Security offers this myriad of opportunities that allow students to serve, whether it's serving their communities, their state, their country. Specifically, the program provides opportunities that I discussed a moment ago that allows greater flexibility in the job market. By combining this diverse student population, we can all learn from each other. And that helps 
the education process, whether you're on campus or online. As you counsel and advise students, Dr. Baggett, where do you see many of them working after graduation? Do they actually get into Homeland Security positions? Well, that's a perfect follow-on question, Steve, to what was just asked. A common misconception that we have to dispel often is that all our Homeland Security students are going to go work for a state or federal Homeland Security department. I ask our listeners to think of Homeland Security as an umbrella or an enterprise uh, combined of a lot of different areas. For example, law enforcement, emergency management, intelligence, private sector security, and a lot of different areas combine to make this Homeland Security enterprise. Now, our students have been very successful on the job market. A few stats for you. Uh, about a quarter of them, about 25%, enter federal, state, or local law enforcement. We have a lot of those folks that come out of the program. We have another 20% or so that go into emergency management. And after that, we have several alums, and this will be very interesting to the listeners because a lot of our students come to us asking about these federal three-letter agencies. So we have students in many, if not all, of those agencies, including the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, the CBP, the federal government alphabet soup, if you will. We've got it. We also have a fair number of students who work in private sector security, something a little bit different to think about for these large Fortune 500 companies, and also those students who enter the military after their studies with us. All in all, it's a great time to have this Homeland Security degree for a host of opportunities in the job market. Very good. I, I'm going to shift gears here just a little bit, Dr. Baggett. I, I noticed that this spring A term that you're teaching a course called Critical Infrastructure Protection. And then in spring B, you'll be teaching Homeland Security Technology. Just to give our listeners a feel, would you speak a bit about these courses and, and what they entail? I mean, what can a student expect? Certainly. So my focus over the last 11 years in, as a faculty member and then the 10 years before working with Department of Homeland Security has been on infrastructure protection and risk analysis. So my courses all rotate around physical security, cybersecurity, risk analysis, technology applications. And these courses, these titles and subject areas are essential for our students, but also students in other majors. In fact, if you look at my publications, they've all focused on these areas, as well as the scholarship of teaching and learning. That's what makes the Homeland Security faculty very unique. We all have a little bit of a different focus, a little bit of a different background that comprises the entire program. So our courses pride themselves on application and problem solving. We do our very best to emulate real world situations, challenges with assignments that students can expect to encounter when they actually graduate. There's a great deal, I'm gonna tell you, of written communication, a lot of writing, a lot of oral communication, and a lot of critical reading and analysis in all of our Homeland Security reports and courses. As a result, our students are better prepared, I'm sure of it, to compete in the dynamic world that we're currently living in. Now back to those two courses, 
the 301 critical infrastructure protection course. We explore how those folks in the field, the practitioners, can safeguard our resources. Uh, that's social, economic, political infrastructures. We also teach our students how to problem solve, how to enable resilience and expedite recovery in case something does happen and something will happen. Just happens that way. This course culminates in the development of a sector analysis plan. Now, as an aside, Steve, I also teach an advanced section of this course for graduate students in the winter and summer. The other course I'm teaching in the B term is the Homeland Security Technology course. It's a bit different in that we look at technologies across multiple areas of Homeland Security. Specifically, we're looking at the possibilities of emergence technologies. So, you know, you look at the consumer electronics shows, you look at all these things that come out. We're trying to see if there's some creative applications to address our threats and hazards in the United States. We also look and see how Homeland Security professionals can utilize those technologies or not in the most efficient and productive manner. So whether some like it or not, we all know that technology is gonna be a foundation in our lives. We teach our students not to view technology as this panacea or cure-all, but rather to evaluate the advantages and disadvantages and then make an informed decision before investing, training, and implementing. It's inevitable that students will utilize these skills throughout their career, so they need to understand how to implement them effectively. Now, I, I may be misunderstanding the term infrastructure a bit, but when I think of infrastructure, Dr. Baggett, I think of things like our road system, our railroad system, uh, bridges, those types of components of an infrastructure. So when I think about that, and I think about the protection of that and risk management, the question that comes to my mind is, how would you, first off, am I right in, in thinking that way? But second of all, if so, how do you mitigate terroristic threats to an infrastructure that is deteriorating? And what pieces of this infrastructure is at greatest risk? So you packed a lot into that one question. So let me break it down uh, there, Steve. So first, you're spot on with an example of infrastructure. So these are the resources that we use day to day that are so critical to our nation that without them, we would not be able to continue living the life that we enjoy now. So definitely the roads and bridges, the buildings, technology infrastructure. Think about it uh, when that iPhone quits working and your, your alarm doesn't go off in the morning and then your day just gets increasingly uh, worse from there. So all those types of things fall into infrastructure protection. So let me break down too. You asked about terroristic threats. So they can never be completely eradicated, as you know. Um, but we can do our level best to mitigate them or lessen their impact on our infrastructures. So the first thing we're going to do is conduct this risk assessment. And in its basic form, let me walk you through it pretty quickly here. Uh, remember, there's entire courses devoted to this at EKU. But I'll give you the, uh, the 10 cent tour, if you will. So we'll start with a threat assessment. So we're gonna look at that terroristic threat that you talked about. 
but we're also going to look at a number of threats and hazards, including what happens when we're down in Florida and hurricane season comes, or we're up in uh, avalanche season, or whatever the case may be with natural hazards. We're also going to look at technological hazards. And what these are basically man-made human accidents. So that tanker that's on I-75 or whatever highway runs next to you that has an accident and the chemicals leak all over the, uh, the interstate there, what do we do there? So what we're gonna do when we look at those is we're gonna look at the history. Um, obviously, we don't need to worry much about hurricanes, hopefully in Kentucky. So we're not gonna really spend much time with that. We're gonna look at the capabilities, specifically with a man-made or a human terroristic threat. Is this a group that actually has some type of capability to do some damage? Or is this pretty much just an ideological group that's gonna do some picketing and some, uh, some slander campaigns and things like that? That affects the level of action that we're nece necessary to take. Then we're gonna look at terms of time and location. So what the time that the incident would occur as well as where the incident would occur has a great impact. So we've got that information. We've done that research through actionable intelligence. We've looked at uh, former reports. We've, we've done our research. Next, we have to kind of look at ourselves. And when I say ourselves, I mean our vulnerabilities. So we're gonna look at the physical security, the actual infrastructure. We're also gonna look at our processes, which uh, we call operational attributes. So as you mentioned, Steve, a number of our critical infrastructures in the United States are decaying. They're in horrible condition. And this is based upon years and years of uh, not investing in them and not improving them. So after a time, those bridges will crumble as we've seen throughout uh, the, the current events there. In fact, I encourage our listeners to go and look at the American Society of Civil Engineers. They were, uh, produce a infrastructure report card each year where they give the different infrastructures categories grades from A to F. I'll tell you, Steve, that on average, the last few years, our grade in the U.S. about the condition of our infrastructure is at a D plus. Now, I wouldn't accept that from a student or my sons, and we're accepting that, unfortunately, for our infrastructure. So that points to a larger problem. This aging and decaying infrastructure are going to have significantly higher physical security gaps than other uh, facilities. The last thing we're going to look at is pretty simple. What happens when those threats and hazards that we looked at in the first step exploit the vulnerabilities that we looked at in the second step? So in doing this, we pay close attention to a couple things, the likelihood. It's important to remember that just because something could happen doesn't mean it's likely to happen or that it will happen. Some things are pretty far-fetched and happen yet, um, very rarely. We also focus on the consequences and impacts if the situation occurred. Is it negligible, is it very, very small, or is it severe? and very significant. This will also change our ability to put uh, different resources different uh, to that problem and mitigating that. So in conducting the risk assessment, we expose students to a variety of methodologies to do those very things that are used by the public and the private sector. Again, 
This is another example of our applied project learning in the Homeland Security Program. Well, I would love to talk to you a lot more about, about this particular topic, Dr. Baggett, but in, for, the, um, for the sake of time, I wanna move us on to uh, another topic and that is online learning itself. Now, student engagement has been shown to be crucial in online learning. And I know that you make extensive use of things like video, personal outreach, um, communications, all the time with your students. You have a reputation of being uh, an outstanding online instructor. Can you tell us a little bit about your philosophy of teaching online? Sure. Uh, let me start with this. Teaching online is not for everyone, okay? And while you can get trained and you can get there, um, it requires a great deal of organization on the part of the professor. It requires that professor to look holistically at the subject matter that they're trying to teach and ensure that each week builds on the next with an eye towards meeting or exceeding those student learning outcomes. And those are so very important. It's not just filler at the front of a syllabus. These are the things that the instructor uses a variety of assignments, of tools, videos, to reach the learner that's on that other end of the screen. So some learners are, are visual, like me. I'm a very visual learner. Some may be more analytical or auditory. So an instructor teaching online has to ensure a variety of assignments or deliverables this is going to enable all the students to better comprehend the information. And quite frankly, it makes the course a lot more enjoyable for everybody involved. Now, regarding outreach, it's really at the core of online learning. I think everybody has had a better taste of online learning, whether they liked it or not, during our pandemic, everywhere from the kindergartner to the business person who's on Zoom all day. Now, my job as the instructors to help the student understand that they're important and they matter. They matter to me and they matter to the program and that their learning and their success is the reason I'm on this end of the computer. That's what we do as online educators. Those solitary moments behind a computer screen can be lonely and online instructors have to do their very best to engage in messages, videos, uh, course elements, something as a simple email will allow that student to understand that they really do matter and the instructor really does care. So to our listeners, I want to assure you that at EKU, there's a team of folks who work diligently on these very things every single day. So not only do you get the same experienced professors as they are in the on-campus classes, but you also get a team of talented instructional designers and other staff who really do care about the students. That's the difference at EKU. Very good. Just tell me, Dr. Baggett, just curious, what, what do you enjoy most about teaching online? I think some of the same qualities that students enjoy about taking online courses probably apply to me in teaching online. Uh, for example, I really enjoy the flexibility of teaching online. Uh, it allows me to do other tasks in the day and then uh, it's necessary to, to do things at night on the, the course or whenever I need to. 
I also, Steve, enjoy the eight-week course duration of the courses of most RE campus courses. I've always felt that this shorter duration allows students to focus their attention to a specific subject area before moving on to the next. Now, they may take fewer courses during that eight week, but it all averages itself out over the course of a semester. I also enjoy meeting students from Kentucky, but also throughout the world that we have and the eCampus program. From a teaching and a learning perspective, I actually get excited when I'm given the opportunity to develop an online course. It may sound a little nerdy, but the ability <laughs> to research and explore new ways to deliver information, it's, it's stimulating to me in my mind. It, it keeps me going. Looking at new technology tools, working with our instructional designers and our, our film crews, and uh, just looking at new projects to undertake and the new information, it keeps me engaged in my profession. I'm then able to take all of that research and work and share it with the students. It's very gratifying for a professor to be able to do that. Well, I'm going to shift gears one more time here with you, Dr. Baggett. And it's mainly because we live in very interesting times here. And I want to talk about an incident that happened that uh, I would like your professional opinion on. On January the 6th of this year, we had the attack on the U.S. Capitol. And that was certainly something that I never thought I'd see, not only in my lifetime, I just never even considered it as an option that it would be attacked. Can you speak to the role that the Department of Homeland Security had in that event? Certainly. As a Homeland Security professional, what's important is to remain as objective as possible through all of these situations and to use a replicable and defensible framework and able to enable it to be put into some type of, of uh, perspective, if you will. So obviously the, the January 6, 2021 actions at the Capitol left a sick feeling in my stomach like it did many others. Uh, that goes without saying, that's the, that's the non-objective piece, but I feel, feel pretty sure that I'm in the majority with that. So when we go back to looking at a risk assessment piece, a threats, vulnerabilities, and consequences. I want to focus a little bit on the consequences here, Steve, of what happened because of that attack. So there's a number of ways that we can evaluate consequences in a risk management framework. Uh, the two I want to focus on a little bit, just for a second, uh, loss of human lives. So that's obviously a main way that we look at consequences. There were five human lives lost uh, with this tragedy. The second piece is maybe something that folks don't think about quite as much, but it, it, it's huge is the psychological effect. We measure consequences on the psychological effect that it has uh, to us as a citizen or an individual or whatever uh, you wanna couch that in. So one of the key symbolic features of our US government uh, was attacked that day. That has psychological effects on many of, of our citizens here and visitors to the United States. But also they play uh, on the other side of this Monday morning quarterback a little bit. But for me, there's a couple of unanswered questions that come with this capital attack that I think we really need to get to the heart of before we can move on. Um, and Homeland Security, several of the courses that our students take are in intelligence gathering. 
intelligence gathering, collecting, analysis, basically um, trying to understand based upon what's happened and what we know, what could happen in the future. And then we're able to either stop that or mitigate that. So there was a breakdown. Um, there was a breakdown at this capital attack uh, that, that the ground folks needed to prepare for this inbound threat that was realized that day. Uh, it seemed like they were unprepared and unaware of the attack that was undertaking. There undoubtedly had to be some pre-existing intelligence, whether it be weeks or days or even hours old that should have been collected, analyzed, and quickly disseminated to the people on the other end of this attack that could, they could better prepare for what was getting ready to happen. The second thing I wanna question is with the number of response personnel that are available in the DC Beltway area, uh, many, many federal, local, state agencies available in that, I'm trying to figure out why the assistance was not requested sooner. Uh, reports note that personnel from the Department of Homeland Security and other agencies were ready they were geared up, they were ready, but they can only respond if they're called, if they're asked to provide mutual aid with that. Unfortunately, they were called, but that call didn't come soon enough. And you could see the effect of the damage that we talked about, the consequences that occurred because of that. So I think that's another piece that needs to be analyzed in this after action report. So in the, the end of the day, uh, whether it's objective or subjective, the loss of life and that destruction of properties, it's inexcusable, quite frankly, from a Homeland Security perspective. We've got to ensure that we've got measures in place uh, to, to make sure this, this event does not happen again within our country. You know, that, that's really interesting and it really leads really well into this next question. Given the nature and state of our culture and country at this point in history, which, as you mentioned, psychologically has, has probably impacted people a lot more than they really think, what would you say to someone who is really interested in pursuing a degree in Homeland Security? What would you tell them now, given the state that we're in? So I've always said this to students, whether they were sitting in front of my desk with their parents on a high school visit, or if they're that, uh, that student that's in the, the second part of their careers. But if you really wanna make a difference, if you really wanna serve your community and your country, there are a number of ways to do so in Homeland Security. So it doesn't have to be the public sector, it can be the private sector. There are a number of opportunities that exist. So we're ready for folks that are willing to safeguard that life and assets. But I'm gonna tell you, the, the road ahead is gonna be bumpy. And for the next several years foreseeable, it's gonna be bumpy, but it's gonna be so rewarding to be able to be on the other end of that, to make, uh, inform decisions that bring about change to our country so that life does become better in those aspects. We're gonna remain optimistic. We're not gonna give up hope that our best days are gonna be ahead of us. Uh, we need hardworking women and men with integrity, with integrity to serve in these roles. So I'll tell your listeners the same thing though as a kind of just a, a caution type thing. 
Uh, many of our careers are not in smaller rural areas, Steve, in Homeland Security, um, unless those are just part of an individual's larger jurisdiction. Homeland Security professionals have to be willing to reside in larger areas and travel when necessary. Um, if this sounds exciting, then Homeland Security may be the right decision for them, but it's not for everyone. Uh, folks need to look within themselves, decide what they want to do, and then take it from there. But it's a great, rewarding career if, if that's what they choose. Well, moving away from Homeland Security for a bit, uh, please tell our listeners a little bit about your new role as Interim Dean of Graduate Studies. Well, thanks for bringing that up, uh, Steve. After being a graduate student in the late 1990s here at EKU, and then of course I was a staff member for 10 years, and then I was a faculty member for another 10 years, it was time to look for a new professional challenge. And I chose that in university administration. So I've been blessed, Steve, with, with the opportunities at EKU. It's been wonderful for myself and my family. And I've been given this opportunity. I first started as the interim associate dean, and now I'm the interim dean of the graduate school. You know, folks don't understand a lot of times that the graduate school at EKU has been around since about the early 60s. I'm the 10th individual to serve as the dean. Uh, we have over 35 master's degrees and four doctoral programs here at EKU. So these degrees not only advance careers, but at EKU, they come with these attributes. So some of these attributes, they're affordable. Take a look at it. It's affordable compared to many of the institutions across the US. They're flexible. Our degree programs are designed for the working professional. That's what we're catered towards. And the biggest piece of it, they're focused on quality. You're getting graduate programs that have been an institution that is hundreds of years old, that has folks that are here, that have had the expansive experience. It's just a great place to be. I must also thankful, you know, you're hesitant when you go to a new office about the staff. Well, they're outstanding. Uh, it's a very dedicated staff. They interact and we'll interact with, and also a number of graduate faculty members and coordinators who show great passion about their programs, their curriculum, but also, Steve, about their students. And that's so refreshing when you talk to, to faculty members. It's a, it's a great, uh, it's a great program. Well, you know, we've hit it on Homeland Security and <clears throat> your role in the uh, graduate school and some, some relevant cultural things. Let me ask you this. What's your personal interest, Dr. Baggett? What is it you like to do in your spare time? Well, my wife and I have two high school boys, and they couldn't be uh, more different, uh, quite frankly. And I feel like over the last year of the pandemic that we teach during the day. So my wife is a fourth grade elementary school teacher. And then we come home and then we help our sons with their assignments. So we're basically teaching all day, but we do have some free time here and there. Um, my 16 my year old, he's into collecting and buying and selling uh, retro toys. So toys from the 1970s and 80s. So he drags me all over. We go to antique shops and flea markets and peddlers mall. And I have a few keen things that I'm interested in as well. My youngest, my 14-year-old, completely different kid, personality, everything about him. He's my sports guy. 
So he wants to be in sports no matter what the sport. So right now he's practicing with the high school baseball team. He's in the high school bowling team. He loves fishing. Basically, if it's a sport, he wants to be doing it. Um, in my personal, whatever's left over, whatever time I have from that, I actually like to refurbish old furniture and I, I do a little bit of light carpentry work and I just enjoy being outside uh, during that yard work. Uh, you know, there's nothing more therapeutic than riding along on the, the tractor and uh, cutting grass. So it's, uh, it's been a lot of fun. And as a family, we enjoy attending church together. We, we enjoy hiking and uh, vacations. And hopefully we can take one this year after the pandemic canceled our plans last year. So it's, it's been a long year, but uh, we're looking forward to some sense of normalcy as we go along. Well, Dr. Baggett, as we wrap up, I, I can say that this has been uh, just a fascinating discussion with you. And I've really appreciated um, your candidness and uh, your expertise on, on just a number of different issues here. But before we close, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Well, Steve, I want to thank you. I want to thank the Instructional Design Center and eCampus for, for taking the time to do these podcasts. I think it's an excellent opportunities. Uh, it's an excellent opportunity for me to share about different things that are going on at EKU. And I, I want to end with this. Um, Eastern Kentucky University is a wonderful institution of higher education. We have the programs and opportunities of a large institution, but we also couple that with the attention and focus of a smaller institution. And that's a rare find these days. For over 20 years, I've seen a lot of transformation, great transformation here at EKU. And I'm just basically excited to see what's next. For those seeking higher education, whether it be online or on campus, I just urge them to give EKU a chance because I know they're not going to regret it. So thanks for having me today. Well, thank you, Dr. Baggett. I've enjoyed our time together.